0: Hi, it's Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. As always, you can reach out to us at food at MarkBitman.com and we're happy to hear from you. We will be answering questions on the air. We have a bunch of those. We're going to do that soon. We'd love to hear from you, as I said. Questions, comments, answers, whatever. Please subscribe, leave comments for us wherever you get your podcasts, and keep listening. We are growing, we are having fun, and we're going to keep doing this. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS. You know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to Aquatrue.com. that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U dot com, and enter code Bitman at checkout. For 20% off any Aquatru water purifier, go to Aquatrue.com and use the promo code Bitman B-I-T-T-M-A-N. B-I-T-T-M-A-N. This week, we have two experts in international food. I wanted to talk to Jennifer Clapp and Raj Patel, especially because I felt like people were asking me, why are food prices going up? What impact does what's going on in Ukraine have on our food prices? And I myself was shocked, I mean, at least surprised, that Ukraine was, I think, the third biggest producer of weed in the world. Needless to say, when a country that is the third biggest producer of wheat in the world is invaded by a neighboring country, world wheat prices are going to be affected. But it's a, it's a very confusing and confounding topic. International trade in food is um, something very, very few people understand, and it is extremely complicated. And I thought it was time for me to get an update in my education, and I hope you will learn along with me and enjoy this jennifer Clapp. when i ran a panel on international trade in food at columbia a few years ago jennifer Clapp was the first person i invited she is an expert on the political economy of food security and sustainability in the global context she may be the expert has published widely on how that works, how the relationship between finance, global food, agriculture, the politics of trade and food security, the social and ecological implications of the corporate concentration that we've been seeing so much of in agribusiness and big food. She is a Canada Research Chair in Global Food Security and Sustainability and professor in the School of Environment, Resources, and Sustainability at the University of Waterloo, Canada. Her third edition of her famous book, Food, is a must-read for anyone who wants to understand this subject in the big picture. Uh, Her book, Speculative Harvests, Financialization, Food, and Agriculture, is also an important book, and she has written others. She's won zillions of awards. Her research has been recognized worldwide. And she's a great talker, as you will hear. Raj Patel is a friend. I reached out to him, I think it was in 2008, when he had just written Stuffed and Starved, which was among the most prescient books of that period. Certainly the first to go into detail about the international scene of some countries, having populations that were starving to death while others were eating themselves sick. Remains a great book. Raj is a terrific writer, a terrific speaker, as you will hear. He is a friend, as I probably said. He's a research professor in the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. He's so devoted to his work that he's willing to live in Texas. He is a recipient of the James Beard Foundation Leadership Award. He's co-director of the award-winning documentary, The Ants and the Grasshopper, which you can see now. It's streaming. It's really great. His latest book, co-authored with Rupa Maria, is called Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. That itself is worth a podcast, and we did one. Raj is terrific, as you will hear, and loads of fun. This is going to be a great conversation please enjoy it i'll catch up with you afterwards since i have both of you and you know i don't want to challenge your modesty but you are experts in this i wonder if you could each sort of paint a picture of what the so-called global food system looks like if if there is such a thing as i said i don't think many of us understand it but how does it work how is it supposed to work does it work does it, is there a theory behind it is it actually a concept is it run by any people or thing, I mean, obviously that's a lot, but uh, you know, to boil it down, I think, is there an international food system and who's running it?
3: Well, I think it's a good question there because we do talk about the global food system a lot, but we need to understand there are multiple food systems. There are local food systems and national systems and regional systems, but there is something, I do think there is something that I call the global industrial food system. And that global industrial food system is the kind of system that is built on a couple of principles. One is largely industrial, large-scale food production, often geared to export markets that is, in a sense, traded globally. And that trade is often taking place by a handful of transnational corporations that control not just the grain trade, but also food processing and food retail, and also the inputs that go into the industrial production. And that system is subject to forces that maybe are not the same as at other scales, such as the role of financial markets and financialization, where commodity speculators investing in food commodities on um, financial markets can actually influence what happens in this global industrial food system. So for me, it has all of these different elements of a certain kind of production model and a globalization of the trade, the role of transnational corporations and um, financial markets. So for me, that's the sort of global industrial food system. So I do think it is a thing and it's different from these food systems at other scales.
4: There's no reason for me to disagree ever with Jennifer. If if there's anything to observe here, it's just... You know, we've been talking about supply chains recently. Everyone's like, oh, there's a supply chain and it seems to be broken. But, you know, supply chains are very old. uh, And before they were, you know, what we recognize as the thing that you, you the the process that gets you your widget from uh, Shenzhen to through Amazon to, to your front door, supply chains were what colonialism operated through. And so while we think of you know the modern supply chain as being this really very tightly managed absolutely sort of uh, nanosecond precision vehicle for for getting things to your door actually it's a very very old process uh, and the, the global food system relies on basically the idea that food isn't there to feed you it's there to make money so the origins of for example what we might recognize as the modern capitalist supply chain are to be found in the spice trade and in the sugar trade right when uh, you have islands in the, uh, in the Atlantic, like Madeira, for example, being transformed into these islands of sugarcane production so that uh, nobility in Europe can have a couple of pounds of sugar uh, were incredibly rare to have in the same place at the same time in the in the 1400s. And the, the, the modern supply chain is about increasing levels of efficiency in transforming and terraforming the world to be able to produce certain kinds of commodities that made bankers rich uh, and made traders very rich that relied on the exploitation of workers really from the 1400s onwards uh, involving, you know, the the origins of modern day slavery and also uh, the, you know, the the sort of transformation of the planet and the the burning of fossil fuels and of just uh, of of carbon embodied in trees in order to be able to uh, fuel this, this you know, the, the, the engines of the supply chain. So, you know, again, agreeing with Jennifer, there is an industrial food system. It's parasitic on these other food systems, right? Who who feeds the workers but these uh, other sort of local supply chains, but the, the, they're all related to one another. And the, the modern food system is very good at not paying its bills. It doesn't pay its workers. It doesn't pay the carers. It doesn't pay the planet. And it uh, makes sure that the the financial engines that do profit from this get below market rate loans in ways that consumers never get uh, to, to enjoy so that a few people make a crap ton of money out of the business of food. And whether people get fed or not is really a secondary issue with which the food industry doesn't concern itself terribly much.
0: I just want to make this clear, and I think I know the answer, but there isn't a system in the sense that there is an operating set of principles or or goals or guidelines other than, as our friend Ricardo once said to me, a couple of hundred rich people running amok. It's not as if there's a czar of food or there's an agreement among countries that food is going to be exchanged in a certain way or that we as a species are actually trying to feed ourselves in some organized international global way any more than any more than there's a car system for that matter
4: no i mean if you don't mind my dropping in john for uh, just because you know the, the world trade organization meetings are happening at the moment and that that's a a, a reminder that in fact there is uh, there are sets of rules that have been fairly aggressively negotiated by these, you know, these millionaires, run amok. And what the World Trade Organization does, for example, is set rules of the road around the levels of government support that farmers can get, for example. Uh, and it also sets the rule for the road uh, for whether seeds can be patented, and it sets a range of conditions around, you know, what counts as safe food trade. So sanitary and phytosanitary measures in international agriculture also fall under the World Trade Organization. So there are rules not just about what it is that can be shipped across across borders and what counts as safe levels of that but also you know who gets to own knowledge embedded in seeds uh, and all of that doesn't happen by magic it doesn't happen just you know out of nothing it took aggressive work uh, really driven by the uh, the united states uh, and the us trade representative uh, who through the formation of the, the world trade organization and through the bureaucratic Uh, lobbying efforts of some of the world's largest traders uh, and, and food manufacturers were able to shape the architecture of the modern food system. This is not some sort of haphazard market outcome. Markets are themselves outcomes. You, you understand that, that actually for there to be an international trading system historically is bonkers. It's very, very new and unusual. Uh, and part of the power of uh, the way that the food system operates is to normalize itself, to make to render normal the fact that uh, you know, wheat grown in Kazakhstan is kind of the same wheat as grown in uh, in the Midwest. Uh, and th- these are fungible commodities that can be traded and exchanged. That historically is very, very unusual. I learned something there. That's great, Jennifer.
3: I would add to that as well, and I really appreciate that Raj is is reminding of, of the importance of history. Um, and also just to note on the WTO uh situation is that when the WTO came on board after the Second World War, they they effectively exempted food and agricultural trade from that agreement. And this was at a time when industrial production was really ramping up with, with you know mechanization and, and hybrid seeds and uh the advent of synthetic fertilizers and agrochemicals. And this led to a huge overproduction of grain, actually. And this is what prompted many states to want to aggressively trade and export that grain. But the problem, because there was no, quote unquote, rules about trading international food commodities, what we saw was these sort of, agricultural trade wars where governments were subsidizing their producers to produce yet even more so that they could sell food for even cheaper the irony of all this is there was a huge food crisis in the 1970s amidst you know this situation similar to what we're seeing today in fact amidst you know at high energy prices and high production etc so it was the pressure of Big trading corporations and and some of the big exporting countries to bring in these rules in the WTO. And those rules came in place in the the mid 1990s when the World Trade Organization, when the GATT turned into the World Trade Organization. And it's been quite aggressive in terms of codifying a liberalization of trade and, and effectively forcing developing countries, low income countries, to open their markets to the imports from the exporters like the US and Australia, Canada, et cetera, the big grain exporters as well as to try and deal with this subsidization problem. The issue with the World Trade Organization Agreement on Agriculture is that it codified a really unequal set of rules. So it's opening, developing country markets, while at the same time allowing the industrialized countries to continue to subsidize their production. That's created some kinds of dependency, basically, on on cheap imports. It's undermined food systems in in the world's poorest countries. And that's part of the root of the problem today is we've got high levels of import dependency in some of the lowest income countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, that they're very vulnerable when prices tend to spike. Anyway, so that's just a bit more context in terms of those those rules. But I totally agree with Raj that those rules are hugely important and they've been shaped not just by governments, but by transnational corporations that really have an interest in this trade.
0: Are the rules working? Or or maybe just a different way of asking that question is... Food is not often in the news. It's taken for granted. It's seen as routine. We expect our not only our wheat but our mangoes. But when food prices spike, as they're doing now, uh, then we start hearing about a so-called food crisis. So, is this a new global food crisis? Is it the same global food crisis? What's happening in 2022 that's different?
3: Well, I, I agree. I agree with you, Mark, that we've been definitely in a food crisis for a while, the system is not working uh, for everyone. It's not working for most people. You're absolutely right that we're hearing about this food crisis now because it's hitting the headlines because prices have spiked quite sharply. And there are geopolitical concerns about uh, the consequences of growing hunger in certain parts of the world. But even before the outbreak of war in Ukraine, the pandemic had caused huge uh, disruptions to the food system and increase the number of people experiencing hunger quite sharply. So, you know, even before those situations, this is just events in the last few years. We had up to 800 million people facing chronic undernourishment, one in three people on the planet facing some form of malnutrition, uh, highly uneven food environments where we have food deserts, food swamps, you know, happening at the same time, precarious livelihoods for hundreds of millions of small-scale food producers and food system workers around the world, food systems causing huge ecological problems in terms of major contributor to climate change, contributor to biodiversity loss, contributor to water stress, in addition to highly concentrated supply chains with uneven distribution of power, where transnational corporations, as we were just discussing, have, have a huge influence over the system. So that crisis, I think, has been around for a while, and people like Raj and myself have been trying to raise awareness about it. It, And it's events like this where we see a sudden price spike that suddenly everyone wants to know what's going on underneath the surface. But it's important that we understand there are structural weaknesses that have been causing those kinds of outcomes. And the numbers have been going in the wrong direction for at least five years. And this is something that has been widely understood in the international system. And that's why the UN Food System Summit last year was trying to get at why is this happening. But ironically, this crisis has shown that almost Everything they focused on in that summit wasn't the kinds of problems that are really existing. They were avoiding talking about the power of transnational corporations because corporations were actually involved in the summit uh, itself. They avoided talking about trade. They avoided talking about you know some of these big power differentials. So I think I agree with you. We've been in a crisis for a while. This trigger has given it a new angle, but it, it's also given us the opportunity to lift the hood and look underneath and see what's going on.
4: I want to just flag for everyone the the, the importance of what Jennifer, Jennifer said, particularly thinking about geopolitical order, right? Because the, the hunger has been with uh, you know has been a sort of feature of, of of modern capitalism for as long as there's been modern capitalism. People are like, oh, that's fine, and if certain people are suffering, you know, th- th- that's okay. Uh, so you know, in the United States, for instance, we have. 40 million people who are uh, food insecure, Um, but that's not what's making the headlines. And uh, that's because, you know, 40, 30 million, ah, we're good with that. Uh, And uh, again, globally, uh, under COVID, I think, Jennifer, your example is exactly right. Under COVID, you know, 800 million people bring year-long malnourishment That's fine. That's okay. The worry now is that the Delta, the the, the sort of additional 50, 60, 70, 100 million people who are going to suffer malnourishment is enough. to destabilize order to the extent that, that now the bourgeoisie, the elites have to start worrying about things. And that's that's the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the boundary condition that brings things into the news. If you think about the last time we were reading about food uh, crises, it was in 2008 and then in 2010. And in 2008 and 2010, we had food price spikes. And then we had uh, a similar sort of story to the one we have now where fuel prices also went up and uh, where interest rates were also... Uh, I mean, it, it, the interest rate story is a little bit dip- different in 2008-2010 because of the, the, the recession and people just throwing money out of helicopters. Uh, but uh, for countries in the global south, uh, things were pretty dire. And you saw uh, changes of government in Haiti, among other places, in, the, in 2008. And in 2010, you saw the Arab Spring. And all of a sudden, there's an association in the minds of policymakers around you know, food uh, food prices and rebellion. And you know, it's a very Malthusian reflex, right? For Thomas Malthus, for, for folk who, who don't quite recall, he, he was the guy who uh, observed that food prices, um, so the, the, the population increases geometrically, but food uh, availability increases only arithmetically. And at some point, the curves cross, and then you have all kinds of mayhem. And that idea that you need food in order to keep the poor happy is something that lurks in the minds, not just of policymakers, but of journalists and m- most folk who, who haven't stopped to think about how it is that actually food systems work. And so right now we're reading a lot about this crisis because we have we imagine that we're over a threshold of some kind. And, and that, that to some extent is true. We've already seen uh, a change of government in in one place where uh, you know fuel prices and economic collapse have been precipitated by some very bad economic policy and uh, some failures in the food system in, in Sri Lanka, for example, but Sri Lanka, won't be the first place where we see this kind of, uh, of, of regime change um, because you know, high food prices and high fuel prices uh, and spikes in those are uh, very tightly correlated with uh, protests and with, with sociopolitical upheaval. And that's why it's in the news right now. So, you know, the, the tragedy is that in a good year when there are merely Uh, hundreds of millions of people who are going hungry. We're fine with that. And even if you look at the the coverage now of who it is that's uh, actually hungry, uh, it's large parts of sub-Saharan Africa that are not getting anywhere near the money that that, that they've been promised by donors. You know, there are parts of Central Africa that are at 10% of the sort of donor subscription for emergency food aid. Uh, Whereas for donors, uh, you know, supporting things, you know, the the, the horrific situation in Ukraine, that's got all the money that it needs. And I I think that's also a reflection on what gets normalised which is uh, racism, uh, and what it is that that seems exceptional, which is these moments of regime change.
0: Are you sort of saying that with the the sort of base threshold of, let's say, 10% of the world's population and 10% of the United States' population being food insecure or even hungry, there's a kind of stability in that, but anything past that is destabilizing? Is it that when hunger starts to affect people who formerly thought of themselves as middle class or as well fed or whatever that's enough to trigger rebellions in various places
4: just to jump in it's the spike it's i mean you, you can observe uh, you know a, a sort of year on year gentle increase in levels of Hunger and for, for you know for the working class over you know in, in the United States since the 1970s you know wages have been stagnant for blue collar workers and the trade off is uh, low fuel prices and low food prices and for things gradually getting worse there's you know there's a certain amount of tolerance for that but what's interesting in this moment is the spike uh, and because the spike of food prices comes with the spike in fuel prices uh, and uh, the way we've set up our economy we're very vulnerable to spikes in food and fuel. And now, of course, in the United States, uh, with with the lifting of restrictions on uh, eviction, uh, we can have rent, uh, you know, uh, housing price increases happening at the same time. When all of these happen together, uh, then all of a sudden people will not get used to that in a hurry. And that's when uh, sociopolitical order is uh, much less stable than just the sort of chronic uh, eking out of, of pounds of flesh from the working class.
3: Yeah, and I would I would add to that. I mean, when we think about the low-income countries, uh, the poorest segments of society spend upwards of 60% of their income on food. And so even a small increase in food prices really means the difference between being able to eat and not being able to eat. And I think maybe just to explain for listeners, because often we, see lots of numbers thrown around in terms of the number of hungry people. And it's confusing even for us as experts, but I just thought maybe I could take a minute to explain because I throw around a number that one in three people on the planet faces some form of malnutrition. And that's true, either mild or moderate uh, food insecurity, micronutrient deficiencies, or overweight and obesity. Uh, those are all forms of malnutrition and, and that's affecting a third of humanity. That's important to understand. Then the next number to explain is that around 800 million people or more are facing what's called chronic undernourishment, and that is not being able to get enough to eat to complete what you need to do during the day consistently over time for a year. That is 800 million people. That's an unacceptably high. high, Any number is unacceptable, and that's extremely high. And then the next number that we're hearing a lot about right now in the context of this crisis is around 300 to 325 million people facing what's called acute food insecurity. That means if they're not going to get food in the next couple of months, this is, this is really a problem. And then the next number, which Raj mentioned, somewhere between 40 to maybe 70 or even higher million people on the brink of famine that means they need food now. And so we, you know, experts in the field who talk about food insecurity have these different layers of understanding of food insecurity. And the numbers on every one of these fronts is is rising. And crises like this especially cause those increase in the number on the brink of famine or facing acute food insecurity. And those are often the people who are spending that high proportion of their income on food. And so when those price spikes happen as occurred, after the outbreak of the war, but they were already high in January. We were seeing levels as high as they were in the previous food crisis back in January, even before this uh, invasion. This was already a deep concern because it's 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 meaning that, you know, suddenly people's ability to even think about what they do in their day and their livelihoods and how they're going to feed their families is completely disrupted and overturned. And that creates a lot of instability. And as Raj mentioned, that instability, especially in some the poorest countries in the world is it's concerning geopolitically for for rich industrialized countries that spend maybe 10 15 percent of their income on food there's they're concerned about these other parts of the world because of that potential for political instability but it reveals that they're not as raj said very eloquently paying attention to that the fact that many people are already experiencing that kind of hunger on a regular basis
0: that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. Aquatru comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to Aquatru.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the Multi-Terrain Select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. want to get to ukraine i really only have a couple of questions left i want to get to ukraine but i want to try to understand what was causing price spikes before that war was it covid or was it some combination of other factors what
3: well it's a, it's a good question so the covid 19 pandemic did cause huge disruptions to food supply chains especially global food supply chains but also local and regional supply chains were disrupted by the pandemic ironically at the, at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone decided to stay home and just thinking this was going to be a two-week you know, tied over and we'll just eat what's in the cupboard. <laughs> food prices actually collapsed in the initial March 2020 uh, pandemic. But since that time, they've become very volatile. And throughout all of like, from late 2020, all the way through until this recent crisis, we've seen food price inflation happening. Part of this has to do with that disruption to supply chains, the it's sort of disrupting supply and demand. And when things started to get back up again, prices started to really rise, exacerbated by a lot of this sort of stimulus package, which in many countries, not all countries were able to do this, but it sort of pushed up prices when there's basically more li- money or liquidity in the system and, and maybe not as much food We because we had uh, shortages because of Food system workers becoming ill in places like meatpacking plants where people were working side by side and becoming sick. And these were sources of huge outbreaks that led to factory closures and and shortages. And so when those kind of situations happen, it kind of allows inflation to brew. And the broader global economic context is another Piece of this puzzle because we've had low interest rates since the last crisis in 2008. As, as Raj mentioned, the situation is different now. I mean, they were lowering rates in that crisis, and now they're raising rates, and that and that's sort of trying to tackle that inflation, but it's creating more and more economic instability as we're seeing on you know seeing on the markets, and so it's sort of created that kind of situation of general inflation that was basically gradual. It was happening maybe not that gradual, but it was. Happening, it, and then the spikes that occurred because of the invasion uh, in Ukraine, where we saw speculation on this sort of futures markets for for wheat and other grains because of this anticipation of further shortages. So this it's it's a bit complicated, and I'm not sure we even can explain everything that's going on in context of food price inflation. But those are some of the elements. And I'm sure Raj has more to add to, add to that, list. I,
4: I can't add to it, but I, I can. I mean, if, if you want the sort of handy way of remembering it, uh, just remember that this crisis is brought to you by the letter C. Um, so, it, it, you know, climate change is uh, there. So th- th- there's a C for you uh, where, uh, you know, you, you mentioned mangoes earlier on, Mark. And of course, the, the mango season now is uh, being utterly crippled in India by the fact that there, you know, the, the, this staggering heat wave has happened at the same time as mangoes ripen. And so there, there's, there are pitifully few mangoes, but mangoes are just the least of everyone's concerns. Climate change is uh, really uh, putting the boot into uh, a lot of the upward trends in uh, commodity prices. And that, that's been, again, ongoing. Every year, we've we've seen sort of slight, slight decreases in the, the possibilities and potentials of yield. Uh, so even though the, the world food stock per person is increasing just a little bit, uh, that rate of increase, is falling. And that's because climate change is driving things. So you've got, see the climate change. conflicts. you know, even before uh, the, uh, the, the the shenanigans in, in Ukraine, uh, conflict was driving lots of people into hunger. Uh, and that's because not just of sort of refugees and not because of just the conflicts in the Middle East, but uh, conflicts around the world are driving uh, poverty. And of course, poverty is the issue here. If, if there's enough food per person in the world, the reason people go hungry is not because there's not enough food, but because of poverty. Uh, and Covid, the another see uh, it really does make that worse. I mean, you know, the, the way that Covid worked, you know, as, as Jennifer was saying, through everything from supply chain shocks to uh, you know, actual sort of you know, the, the the devastation of bodies of workers who are in the front lines, all of that matters. As does the fact that then countries have to borrow money in order to just keep people fed while they stay at home. And for countries in the global south, that racks up the debt. And then when the interest on, on that debt goes up. You, you see countries folding uh, and so covid is is part of it has just exacerbated these sort of trends in debt uh, and indebtedness that are again brought to you by the, another sea colonialism so you know you've got covid climate change conflict colonialism um, and then chemical agriculture makes it worse the fact that russia is such a major exporter of uh, npnk the nitrogen phosphorus and uh, potassium the, the the chemical fertilizers that drive our industrial food system uh, are uh, experiencing Spikes uh, as well, because you know, particularly nitrogen fertilizer is linked to um, to fossil fuels, and so when the price of oil goes up, so does the price of, of nitrogen fertilizer. Chemical agriculture has us over a barrel, and when uh, that sea becomes more expensive, so does the rest of the food system. Uh, so you know, th- th- there there are lots of dynamics happening simultaneously, but I, I do think that that uh, you know, ultimately, this is driven by the, the big sea of capitalism, uh, and if if we understand how capitalism. In this particular moment, is undergoing crisis. Uh, Will understand what what was already in place before Ukraine, and Ukraine just makes it worse.
0: Let's just talk about Ukraine for one second, because it is kind of the catalyst in everyone's mind. Not everyone's, obviously, but those of us who are not as don't have a, as big a long range view as the two of you and. Well, I will confess to being surprised that Ukraine was a major world supplier of wheat. So I think that it's safe to say that if I was surprised by that, many other people were surprised by that. I'm not a complete idiot. Um, but I am even given that, okay, there's conflict in this place that's a big grower of wheat. That that's uh, That's a big deal. But maybe it's hard for us to or or challenging for us to understand how that affects the United States, given that we are also a very big grower of wheat. And while I suspect I know some of the answers to that, I bet I don't know them all, and I bet a lot of people would be interested in hearing your answers to that. So the question is really, how does a crisis, a conflict in one country that's a big supplier of a given food affect, it seems, every other country in the world?
3: Yeah, well... As you mentioned, Ukraine is a major producer of wheat. Um, It's it's got a similar landscape and climate to North America, um, which is also a big uh, producing region. Um, But the issue here is that together, Russia and Ukraine produce around a quarter of the world's traded wheat or wheat exports and around 20% of the world's maize exports and something like 60% of the world's uh, sunflower Oil exports and these are all extremely important commodities uh, for food security, but also for for other purposes like you know f- f- their food ingredients that go into the industrial food system. Some of these crops can be used for biofuels, etc. So they're they're importantly traded commodities, and a number of countries, as I mentioned earlier, are dependent on food imports, and a number of those countries are dependent on Ukraine and Russia specifically. Many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. Import from Ukraine and Russia, and so what? What happens is obviously those countries that relied on those exports because they have been disrupted. And but there is a continuation of exports from the region; it's just slowed down, uh, and it's been very disrupted. And so those countries that need those imports of, of wheat or maize or sunflower oil, um, they need to source it from somewhere else. And so when they're trying to source it from somewhere else, there's a lot of logistical things that have to happen. To, to, there's these big grain trading companies that we call the ABCDs, uh, Archer, Daniels, Midland, Bungie, Cargill, and another C, and Louis-Dreyfus, and they control somewhere around you know, 80, 90% of the global grain trade. And they also, they're shippers, right? They're shipping these products. And so their insurance rates have shot way up um, just because... Traveling, you know, moving grain out of the Black Sea region, especially, has, has become really dangerous because of the war. And so costs are going up. There's these logistical changes. There's now new demand from coming from places like North America that grows grain or Argentina or Australia. And so Prices are being bid up because of these weird perturbations, you know, on the market. So it's affecting not just the countries that used to import from Ukraine and Russia, which some countries have imported quite a bit. Uh, Egypt, uh, Eritrea, Somalia, Lebanon, they, they they rely quite significantly on Black Sea region food imports from that region. Um, but it's affecting every country that is dependent on food imports because the prices are rising and these logistical Um, challenges are happening. And part of the reason this has been so problematic is the high degree of concentration of the countries that produce for export. So we mentioned that Russia and Ukraine accounts for 25%, that's a quarter of the world's traded wheat exports, but there's only eight or seven countries plus the European Union account for like 90% of it. Um, So if anything happened in any one of those countries, it would be a similar kind of crisis. So that high level of concentration means there's not that many places to go to to source your food from somewhere else. And so that, again, contributes to these problems in the system. So it does end up being a global crisis because two suppliers are, are taken out of the market
4: what we're in is this sort of moment of crisis where, uh, as Jennifer said, right at the beginning of our conversation, the real solutions around transforming, confronting uh, the power of these large corporations, thinking about debt relief, thinking about reparations for uh, climate damage, none of this is on the table. And instead, we're left with the sort of Bill Gatesian approaches of, well, what we need is slightly more precision agriculture and slightly more fertilizers for farmers in Africa, and maybe we'll teach everyone to code and everything will be fine. Uh, But the last thing that we're being offered in terms of a solution is uh, something more robust in terms of uh, undoing the system that got us into this mess in the first.
0: Last question: Is there a way to imagine how the food system might work short term or relatively short term if the top priority were not profit, were not if the top priorities were not being set by the corporations that kind of run the whole show, but if the top priority were alleviating hunger and feeding everyone or nearly everyone nutritious food?
3: We're seeing increased openness to the idea of making supply chains shorter, making them more local and regional, even in places of power. So this is super fascinating because we've gone through this period since the late 70s, early 80s of you know neoliberalism and a push for global free trade and, and all of this stuff. and suddenly we're seeing a bit of an ideological shift in some places towards this idea of reshoring production, and that includes food production. So it's really interesting. And after the last crisis, if you talked about um, food self-sufficiency in 2008, you'd get a scathing uh, editorial written about you in the Financial Times saying that you were absolutely bonkers. We're not seeing that this time. So that's quite interesting to me, that there is some shift. I mean, obviously, there's still pushback, Um, from sort of the diehard free traders and and neoliberal uh, advocates. But there is a bit of a shift going on. And we're seeing as well more and more concern about monopoly power. As as we speak, there's, you know, the U.S. government right now is looking into monopoly power in the food system in the U.S. That's an interesting shift uh, that's going on. And so this might create some openings for some different ways to imagine food systems that are not, sort of tied to that global industrial food system. And another shift I think that's going on is a realization that scholars like myself have been, you know, complaining that, you know, nobody's paying enough attention to climate change and it's, you know, how the food systems are intimately linked with climate change. It's no longer a warning. It is a reality you know, through droughts and the heat dome episode in in Canada last year was was just devastating. And so governments are waking up to understand that reality. Again, of course, there's pushback against this and climate denialism. But again, I think there's a bit of a shift going on there. And then the different economic circumstance with the high levels of debt in low-income countries and rising interest rates right now, Again, that's create, that's, it's, it's created a new environment. And then you add the sort of new geopolitical uh, context on top of that. I think we're seeing some big shifts afoot. And, it you know, shifts always, they happen in times of destabilization. They can create openings for change, but they can also create opportunities for the powerful to step in and and continue to push their path. So this is the moment, I think, to be having these conversations and to really be um talking about what these alternative visions can look like because this is one moment where I think there is more openness to considering different models.
0: Thank you so much for that and for that sort of glimmer of hope and even optimism. That's great. Thank you both. Uh, No quiz on this. That was all for your, as we used to say, all for uh, a little tidbit for your liberal education. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I Always learn when talking with Jennifer and Raj, and and they make it enjoyable too. So thank you to those two geniuses, Jennifer Clapp and Raj Patel. You can find Jennifer on Twitter at Jen Clapp, J-E-N-N-C-L-A-P-P, and Raj at underscore Raj Patel. It's underscore R-A-J-P-A-T-E-L. Again, thank you to them both. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week when we will have somebody magnificent. Bye.